standing for the reading of God's precious word. If you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're just going to, as we've wrapped up chapter 15, we're just going to continue right on into the parables of chapter 16. And beloved, before I read uh, from those first 13 verses, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Let's pray. Now, gracious Holy Father, we come in the name of Jesus, Lord, asking for light and understanding. We come, O Lord, asking you to take this word, this word found in the Gospel of Luke. Help us to understand it. Help us to relate to it. Help us to apply its truth to our lives. Help us this day to consider, Lord, our Christian life, Lord, what we have before you. Help us to amend it, Lord, where it needs amending. Help us, O oh Lord, to, to shore up with right knowledge and right practice. Lord, we pray that those two things would always be ever before us as important. So, Lord, take this word. And make that effectual application that we confessed a moment ago to our hearts and to our minds. Lord, without your spirit, without your attendance, this is in vain. So we beg for your presence. We beg for your power. We beg, O oh Lord, that you would come to your sons and daughters, and Lord, and bless us with the word of truth. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin reading at verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. Hear now the word of the living God. He, being Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account for your management because you can no longer be my manager. And then the manager said to himself, what should I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, that when I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each of his master's debtors. How much money do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. And the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails... They may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will entrust you with what is genuine? And if you have been unfaithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? And no household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't always, uh, you, 
you can't be slaves to both God and money. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As I pondered over the, this parable and this chapter as we are going forward and continuing to study the parables and the relationship of these parables to the kingdom of God, I thought, what better parable to begin the year with. I did not schedule it that way. It certainly wasn't planned on my part, but in God's providence on the first day of the year, we have an opportunity to examine our lives, particularly in the use of money. And money is a very important topic to the book of Luke. In fact, out of all the gospels, Luke records more of what Jesus says about money than any of the other Gospels. It was something that he looked at and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided to record for our benefit. And our Lord did speak more about money than he did sex and, well, hell. And Luke makes this point throughout the Gospels. In fact, this parable has carried the title for most of I mean, when we hear the title of the unjust steward, we may think exactly of this parable, but this parable is a little obscure, it's not well known, and it's really difficult or at least presents some challenges for the Christian to properly understand and make application in their lives. So many Christians just simply do not pay much attention to it at all. In fact, if you go home this afternoon and wish to pull out many of your commentaries and even online, you're going to find that there is a wide breadth of application to this parable. I mean, uh, more than I have fingers and toes, all right? So um, what is it that I'm going to bring before you this morning? Well, hopefully a couple of things. Number one, I want us to, to be reminded of interpreting the parables, what we need to focus on. Number one, it's just one main point. We need to keep that in mind. If we're really going to make use of this parable, as all the parables, but particularly this one because of the challenges it presents to us, well, we need to make sure that we really fixate upon the one main point. We want to make sure that we don't turn the parable into an allegory as some try to do, and they get in big trouble when, you know, they do that, or we would get in big trouble if we did that as well. But the second thing that I want to remind us of is that the parables teach us something about the nature of the kingdom of God. That's their purpose. There are at least four categories of the kingdom of God that we could place all of the parables in. And of course, this isn't in concrete by any means, but it's a useful way to think of the parables. There are those parables that uh, are, are related to the triumph of the kingdom of God. They, they teach us that the kingdom of God will constantly and consistently grow in this world like the parable of the wheat and the tares 
the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, Those parables are related to the expansion and the triumph of the kingdom. You have parables that are related to how one enters into the kingdom of God. You can think the parable of the sower for that, that we know that the, the kingdom of God is sowed through the preaching of the word of God. That's how it, that's how it's sowed. That's how people come in contact with it. And then there are those parables that address the eschatology of the kingdom. That is, this world is not eternal, right? There's a there is an expiration date. There is a, an appointed day when, there will, when this world, as we experience it, will come to an end. But the kingdom of God will continue on into that eternal uh, experience, if you will. And there are parables that relate to this. But this morning, this parable relates to the nature or the behavior of the kingdom, how we as Christians are to conduct ourselves in the kingdom of God. That is, if we claim to be the, the sons and daughters of God, well, there are things that we should check off in our life to make sure that we're in compliance, right, with the kingdom. Um, it's not about uh, making a profession of faith and, and then simply going about our own business, going our own way and living how we want to live. That's not the kingdom of God and that's not the behavior of a genuine Christian, is it? That's not what we've learned. We've learned that, that the kingdom of, of God that there are conditions, there are requirements, there are, there are laws and rules that we live by, that we walk by, and that the power of God is working in us, right, to live out that, that life of grace. It's not that we earn any benefit. It's not that we are uh, assuming to ourselves uh, all of these uh, attaboys so that we get more than others. That's not it at all. It's just that as we are empowered by the Spirit, we're empowered to live the Christian life. And that has a reality to it. And yes, we can struggle. And we often do struggle. It's not that the ones that are empowered by the Spirit never struggle, but it's that the ones who are empowered by the Spirit, the one who is being impressed upon with the Word of God, there is a a, a molding of our lives to that Word, to that truth, to that moral rule. And we do it out of love for God. We do it because we love God. We do it because we love God's people. We do it because we love the worship of God. We love to gather with our brothers and sisters. Remember, the Christian life is a life that can be summed up in one word, love. Love. We are regenerated and empowered by the Spirit to love God first and foremost. That's what it means to glorify God. That's what it means to enjoy God. You enjoy him because you love him so much. 
You want to glorify him because as you love him, as he reveals more and more of himself to you, you can see that he is beyond, I mean, he's beyond anything else. His beauty far exceeds anything else. I wish we talked more like that as Christians. The beauty of Almighty God his fingerprints all over this creation. I mean, think about his immense glory and beauty and honor and majesty by the awe, the awe of inspiration his creation gives us. Whether it's a sunset or a sunrise or a, a, a landscape or whatever the case may be, whatever it is you enjoy, whatever it is you find beautiful, whether it's the beach or whether it's the mountains or the deserts or whatever it may be, God did that. He did it for his own glory, but he did it for you. He did it for all of his children. He did it so that we could live out our lives in this vast beautiful landscape to live before his face and bring him glory, to love him and to love all those things that are related to him. Well, this parable does present several challenges. As I read the parable, you probably picked up on some of those. It's a, I think it's a big mistake to see the parable as somehow God um, commending unrighteous behavior. That would just, that, that, that's, I think we should just really erase that one. Even though there are some Christian scholars that would hold to that application. I think what I want to do this morning in order to address some of the difficulty of the parable, and, and I'm not at all saying that I have the final word on this. You go home and study it yourself. You go home and challenge my viewpoints. Um, I, I, I lay it out there. I think they're faithful interpretations. Uh, I think they are solid and reasonable interpretations of the text. And yet what we get from it and what we walk away with is that if it does not impact the way we view this world that we live in, in relationship to how we use our money, we've missed it altogether. We've missed it altogether. And of course, as a preacher, I'm always reluctant to preach on money because of the abuse of the so-called TV preachers and money, and yet the bottom line is that the kingdom of God has in some ways to be financed. It takes money to establish churches. It takes money to support pastors. It takes money to support missionaries. It takes money to fly across the world and establish Christian churches, to establish Christian schools, to establish Christian hospitals. You know, there was a day, and I'm afraid that day is, is past us. There are so many hospitals in this nation that began as Christian hospitals, Christian ministries, orphanages, Christians desiring to, to, to flesh out their love for God and the kingdom of God and their fellow man and establishing ministries that benefit others. 
And most of those places, I wouldn't say all of them because I wouldn't have the I wouldn't have the under, I wouldn't have that knowledge. But many of these have been taken over by private corporations. But they were started by churches, by Christians, by by people that had a view to see the kingdom of God spread and benefit others. And I think that is the larger picture of what this parable teaches us. Well, let's look at the parable itself, and hopefully I can erase some of those challenges or at least speak to them so that you will have a better use of the parable in your prayer time, in your private time, however you want to take this parable home with you and use it later, which I hope you will. In fact, I would say I'm so thankful. I know that some of our old, us older saints who have been around some time, it's always good to be reminded of how we should use our money, but I'm thankful for our young people to have an opportunity to hear the, this lesson and to hear a sermon and to see that Jesus addresses the use of money because of the challenges they face. And we often do a poor job as Christians training our children up to be stewards, uh, good stewards, if you will, over those resources that the Lord gives to us. We often fail at that. We often impress upon them the reading of Scripture, but really not the lessons of Scripture. And maybe this morning we can at least um, uh, correct some of that. Well, let's look at the parable. And there are going to be five comparisons that I want to make in the parable. Now, there are other ways we could dissect the parable, but I, I found this one to be at least the one that was impressed upon my own heart in a way that I think can can easily be remembered from your vantage point. That is, I want to hopefully uh, give it the teaching to you in a way that you can easily reflect upon it. Now, the first comparison that Jesus makes is with the steward himself. The steward himself. There's a comparison, and the comparison is the steward's previous management, right, previous habits, and his newfound habit. Look at the parable. It says right there in um, verse 1, he is the rich man. There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. And so he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. We see right there in those first two verses that the master, the owner, the one who possessed the estate that the, the steward was managing, his assets, we see that there has been charges made that someone has come to the master and they have accused the manager of being wasteful. That's the accusation. Now, there was just a few paragraphs back in the parable of the prodigal son, we read a, a parable of a father that had a wasteful son. 
So there's a connection, I think. Jesus is continuing this sort of opportunity with his disciples to help them understand, possibly because of the two extremes that exist with money, it's either, it's either valued more than what it is or it's not valued for nothing, which is both of them wrong. So Jesus takes this opportunity and he begins to tell the story. And we see that the, the manager was wasteful. He wasn't a good manager. He was very frivolous with his master's money. He was not efficient. He was extravagant. He was wasteful. That is, he would just blow money. That's the idea that the uh, story is giving us, that the manager just did not uh, take care of the details, and he didn't manage the master's money as he would his own, if you will. And so he was a very wasteful manager. And he's fired because of this. This gets him fired. And this was a blow to the manager because he tells us right there in verse 3, it says, then the manager says to himself, now he's talking to himself. He's thinking through what just happened. He goes, what should I do? My master is taking the management away from me. Now, I mean, he's not arguing with the master. I believe he's guilty of mismanagement. He's guilty of being inefficient. He's, he's guilty of being extravagant. He's guilty of being wasteful. He doesn't have a, a, an argument to present to the manager. He doesn't in any way tell the, the, the master, if you will, I'm not guilty of these things. Who brings these charges? No, he's guilty. He's guilty. He's living the life. And he is he is just cavalier with his master's assets and that finally comes home and he finally has to give an account for it and he is basically terminated because of his wastefulness, rightly so. And he begins to think to himself and he, he's, you can see he lives a soft life. He's gotten used to a soft life. He says, he's thinking to himself, I'm not strong enough to dig. He's a very soft man. I can't dig, I can't provide for myself, I can't do manual labor. That's below me, if you will. Begging is below him. He's too ashamed, but begging actually was a profession in the Eastern culture. So it was sort of an occupation, if you will. They were places, I mean, very much like today, there's exits, right, that these professional beggars uh, uh, compete for because they are profitable, right? There's more giving people on this exit five than exit six. So we want to get there early to exit five because that's where we can make the most money. In fact, there was an article in Atlanta uh, paper one time over how one, I think, made somewhere around sixty to $80,000 a year begging. Not bad. Well, he doesn't want to do that. That's below him as well. He's ashamed to do that. That would not sit well with probably uh, his small circle of friends. So that's his past. And I think that that's the focus that the title, when you see the, the parable of the unjust steward, that the title really reflects the, this past habits and practices of this manager but then notice what he does and we we it, it must have been a clever thing because 
of the master's response in verse 8. He pray, he's praised. We'll look at that in just a second. But in verse 4, what does he do? He says, I, I know what I'm going to do. Now, think through this. He says, I know what I'll do. He says, when I'm moved, as I'm removed from management, he says, I, I'm going to, so that people will welcome me into their home so that I can continue with this particular um, lifestyle. He says, I'll summon my master's debtors who are indebted to him, and I'll, I, will, I will act in such a way that they will become indebted to me. I will take my master's debtors, and then I will work craftily, and they will become my debtors. And that's what he does in verse 6 and following. He goes to one of his master's debtors and who owed him, a, the text says, a hundred measures of oil. That's a great sum of oil. Um, olive, uh, this hundred measures is probably just shy of a thousand gallons of olive oil. Um, I don't know how many olive trees you can get per acre in that uh, Palestine area, um, probably not too many land is good land is scarce, but you're talking about somewhere shy of 200 trees to produce that kind of olive oil. I mean, it's substantial. That's the point. It is substantial. And it's also well known in the East that olive oil is perishable. So it has to be quickly, it has to be traded quickly, it has to be dealt with quickly. It has to be marketed commercial. I mean, you've got to, you can't sit on it. I mean, you've got to have a plan in order to move the olive oil if you're going to, to purchase it for a certain price and make a profit on it. I mean, you, you, you can't be lazy. You've got to be working that. And so we see here that there's 50% taken off of this. I'm going to uh, address that in just a second. He says, take your invoice and cut it down quickly, write 50 Next, he said to another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat. And he said, take your invoice, he said, and cut it uh, to 80, write down 80. Now, it can be, and I think it's proper here to, to think that Jesus is bringing to light some of the uh, inscrupulous rabbinic teaching and practices when it comes to dealings financially with one another remember there really were two sets of hebrews if you will there were those who wanted to live by the law of god those who strove to live by the law of god those who desired to live by god's law and then those were and then there were those who lived by the law of the rabbis and the rabbis were notorious for circumventing god's law for taking god's law and handling it in such a way that that their traditions could subvert it let me give you an example it's possible and i think reasonable in order to make sense of the text that these debtors to the master were in need and the master was more than happy to take and give them large sums of produce so that they could use it to make a profit and they would have been charged no interest in fact, it was against biblical law to charge a brother, uh, a Hebrew, interest. What it looks like has happened is that the steward, the manager, 
who was in charge of the master's estate, who had the authority to, to manage that the way he saw fit until he didn't, was to go and then he would, he would add his little interest on top of it. He would put his interest on top of it and, and he would give him, if you will, some kickback from that arrangement. So what he does is he goes to the debtors and he sits down with them and he basically removes the interest. So he's not defrauding the master at all. The master is getting the money he is owed, the amount that was borrowed. And yet the uh, steward, the manager, is taking off the interest. He looks like a hero. He is coming in there. Remember, his goal is to indebt those people to himself. They think he's doing a good thing. They think it's helping them. And they're saying, listen, my master would like, listen, take 50% off. And I'm sure that the debtors were so pleased and so thankful that thou, what they thought they owed so much has now been cut in half when it comes to the oil. In the same way with the, the grain or the wheat, he cut it 20%, which is actually in the Middle East, it's actually what the interest rate was on oil and wheat. 100% interest on the oil and 20% upon the wheat. So it looks like the master was shaving off the top. He went out and he had added to that what, the, the, what his master would have rightly been owed if he had done it the biblical way. And yet he looks like a hero. The master looks like a hero. And what is he doing? The steward is ensuring that he has friends, friendships, people that will be so thankful for what he did for them that they will be more than happy to either give him a job or help him along the way. And that's what he wanted. That's what he desired. So Jesus makes this comparison. Now notice what he does. Look in verse 8. Notice how Jesus sets this up. The master of the servant praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely, right, or shrewdly your version may say, or wisely, or prudently. Either one of those would work. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. So what we see here is that the steward come to his senses, if you will, and he sits back, he goes, listen, how can I, and this is the point of the parable, I believe, what Jesus is doing as he's teaching the these sinners, these, these tax collectors and these prostitutes, these scribes, the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, and he's, he's now, he's pointedly teaching his disciples. He says, listen, listen. If you knew what your future was, wouldn't you do something about it? That's the point. If you knew that your future was condemnation and judgment, now you got to go through the context of the other parables. If you knew what 
was ahead of you, if you knew what your destiny was, if you knew, if you grasped the reality of your future, would you make a change if you had to? Because so many people don't. And that's why the master, and that's why Jesus is using the story, is because the master saw his future. Now, the change in the comparison here is he didn't live that way before. He lived for the moment. He was wasteful, extravagant, flamboyant. He didn't care about tomorrow. He didn't care about the past. I'm living in the moment. I'm doing what I want to do. I'm buying what I want to buy. I'm spending what I want to spend. I have no concern whatsoever about tomorrow until he didn't have the job. And then he become aware of his future. You realize things weren't always going to be this way. He had been charged with being wasteful and he had lost his job and so now he needs to take action and that's the point that Jesus is making in the parable. If you know your destiny, will you take the appropriate action to deal with it? Will you act upon it? And you can say, well, sure. Don't you think it's a fair statement to make that there are many people that will be sitting under the sound preaching of the word of God today that will hear about a destiny of hell and judgment and not do anything about it. And they will leave that assembly and they will go and they will do the things that they did the day before and the day before that and the day before that. You see, and I think, the, where does the money come in? Where does the mammon come in? Well, I think this, as we will look at the comparisons as we continue, there's nothing that really reflects our hearts, desires, um, pleasures, delights, joys, more than how we spend our resources. And our resources aren't just money, but it's a, it's, it's, it's a part of it, isn't it? I mean, we have the resource of time. Some of us have more time than others to use in the kingdom of God. Some of us have talents. Some of us are, are, are more talented. And you can think about the parable of the talents, right? I mean, you can think there are several parables that we could have brought as subcategory parables into this to fill it out, but I, hopefully they're coming to your mind. I mean, there's, there's all number of resources. There are families that are, that are, that are more um, equipped and educated and, and thoughtful and ready and prepared to serve others better than other families that are young, inexperienced, Coming to know Christ early or later in life, and, and like I did and, and my wife did, we, we came to Christ right when we got married and had to learn a, hard, a lot of hard lessons about what a Christian husband looks like. What does a Christian wife look like? What does this relationship look like if you're both professing to be Christians? And how do you raise, how do you raise little Christians? All of those things. 
Some families throughout the generations are better prepared, equipped, and ready for those types of things and can be a better aid and help to others. So I don't want you to just think that that this is centering solely upon mammon. Jesus highlights it, but there are other ways that that there are other things that we could add to this. And those are the things we have to examine as we look at the text. What are my resources? What are my skill sets? How, How do I wish to ingratiate myself to others so that I can truly be wealthy? Because that's where we're going in the text. Wealth is not wrong. It's not evil. It's not bad. It can be used for evil just like everything else. And it often is. Paul, to a young pastor named Timothy, warns Timothy, don't love money too much. Don't be greedy. Look out. Watch for these things. Uh, Why? Because there have been many pastors fall into these sins and it ruined them. Be careful. So we see the comparison that is made in the story of the steward. First, he's extravagant and wasteful. Now he's very, very uh, helpful. He's very conscientious with the master's resources. And the master looks at it and he's receiving his money. And he goes, well, he praises him. Well, let's look at another comparison. So we see that the, uh, the, the steward went from being wasteful to being crafty, discerning, artful, um, very conscientious. He's thinking about these things. He, he went from being wasteful to beneficial. But now notice the comparison that Jesus makes is the sons of this age and the sons of light. He says right there in verse 8, he said, The master praised the unrighteous manager. Now he's talking to his disciples because he acted astutely. Jesus is saying, listen, take note of this. For the sons of this age are more astute, are more wise, are more discerning than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. Now, he's talking about the relationship of unbelievers to unbelievers from Christians to Christians or believers to believers. In order to get what he wanted, he became useful and beneficial to others. Now, Jesus isn't at all saying that, well, be a hypocrite. He's not advocating hypocrisy. Nor is he advocating deception. But what Jesus is recognizing is the value of human relationships and meeting the needs of others and and the place that that puts one in when you do so. I don't know, brothers and sisters, if many of you have had this privilege or not, but if you've served others for any length of time, you probably have gotten a phone call years later from people you've forgotten about. And I've been blessed with these phone calls, and they would say, Brother Jess, I'm so-and-so, and I'd be like, how you doing? And I wouldn't remember them. But then they would describe the situation. And they were calling me years later. I even hate saying it because I'm not promoting, I'm promoting good 
deeds, not me. But this, this just acts of kindness. I won't go into what at all it was, but it was just that. I just want you to know that that had an impact upon me. And I wanted to call you and thank you for it. And I had forgotten about it. Yeah, it wasn't that it didn't mean anything. It's just that life moves on. This is the point that Jesus is enforcing upon his disciples. He's telling his disciples, listen, the sons of this age. Now, what are the sons of the age? The sons of the age are those people who have similar likenesses, similar interests, similar desires, similar wants. They are connected by similar motivations, similar goals. Just like believers are connected with what? Similar goals, similar motivations, and similar interests, right? They mean to glorify God and enjoy them and, and break it down from there. But he's saying, listen, as you serve one another, you are creating true value and wealth in your life. And as you use these resources to do so, you are truly being the steward of God's world and resources. We see here, let me look at Proverbs chapter 19. I'm going to give you a story. It's not about me. And that's a good thing. In Matthew chapter 19, and verse 6, many, I know how we typically read this, many seek the favor of a ruler. And everyone is a friend of one who gives gifts. And a lot of times we read that in the negative. Oh, well, people like a giver. But that's how you're supposed to read it. There's, is there anything wrong with liking a, a giver? There's nothing wrong with liking one who is a giver. What's wrong is showing favoritism to the one who is a giver. See the difference? You see how we think through these Proverbs? You see how the way we get caught up in the, some of these negative nuances? And we say, oh, yeah, yeah, a giver always has friends. Of course he does. I, I heard a story of a, a manager who had hired uh, a, a young person to work in the, the places filled with a lot of older workers. And so how does this young person ingratiate uh, themselves to this environment, this new environment? Well, I'll tell you what he does. As he got to know the people, his workmates, he would just begin buying these little bags of chocolates and writing their name on them and sitting them on their desk and saying, hey, thank you for taking the time to talk to me the other day and help me out with this problem and that problem and to show me how to do this and to show me how to do that. And now when that person walks through that environment, the one relating the story to me goes, oh, hey, hey, they're all speaking to him as he walks across the room. Why? Not because they're not buying their friendship. It's just that they recognize kindness. And that goes a long way. Amen? 
And Jesus says that the sons of this age do it better than the sons of light do it. Look at Proverbs 18, verse 16. A gift, a gift opens doors for a man and brings him before the great. Again, we can read that in a negative or a positive. If we read it in the negative, we say, well, I don't want to be that guy. Well, you don't want to be the one that is brought and ushered in before great people? You don't want to be the one that has the opportunity to sing before the great? I mean, that's a talent to give or, or to expound the word of God before the great or, or to build something for the great as a carpenter or to fix the computer, right? What do you want to do? I mean, you want to be the guy that goes, hey, I know somebody you need to talk to because of the past acts of kindness of that individual. You see, brothers and sisters, what Jesus is helping us understand is, is that as the steward had squandered in his previous life all of those uh, resources upon himself, now he sees the value of benefiting others. He sees the value of it. And he sees how benefiting others is also helpful to him. Well, Jesus makes the comment, doesn't he? He says, the sons of light, now notice, notice the verse, for the sons of this age are more astute, wise, discerning, they get it, than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. Well, that's the second comparison. We, we can see, you know, when we consider ourselves. In fact, I, I'll give you, um, uh, uh, I thought this was clever. In a counseling class, one of the ways that the counselor, the professor, teaches um, his students how to value their future on the first day of the semester, he walks in and he hands them a sheet of paper, it's blank, and he says, all right, you have one hour, write your obituary. So they spend an hour and they write their obituary. Then he comes back after the hour and they go over the obituaries and they said, are you living right now in light of that obituary? Are you living in such a way that you're useful and beneficial to others in such a way that these things can be stated of you and said of you and it be true and genuine? The point of the class was now live that life. If this is what you want said in your obituary, then you begin today living every day in light of that future. And that's the point, isn't it? That's what Jesus is saying here. How, let me state the obvious. Aren't you more apt to help someone who's helped you 
Is that wrong? No. Just more apt. I didn't say you weren't help others. But when it comes to helping those that you know for a fact has given themselves to you in some way, some way that you had a need, it was met or exceeded, and that person met that need, are you not more apt to help them in their time of want? Sure you are. Sure you are. In fact, you will go over and beyond to help that person out of thankfulness and gratefulness and to want to return that act of kindness with an even greater act of kindness if God so chooses to give you that privilege. So we see the comparison that Jesus makes between the sons of this age and the sons of light. And Jesus makes a general statement. He says, you know, they do it better than the sons of men, the sons of light, if you will. And then their third comparison is that there is certainly a comparison between the eternal and the temporal. The eternal, the eternal things and the temporal things. Look in verse 9. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. That's a very difficult verse. And it has, it has caused some to stumble quite a bit. I, I, I'm going to keep it as simple. I think it's like my professor said. He said, if the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense. So let's keep it plain and simple. Notice what he says in line of everything else that I've already said to you. He says that I tell you what? Make friends. The verb, make friends. Christians, make friends. Make friends. Reformed Christians have a tendency of cutting everybody off that don't agree with them. We're great at it. When I visited Scotland... I'm sitting at the seminary where the lectures are being held and I'm speaking to one of the Presbyterian ministers there and I, I, I'm, I'm just, I, I've got stars. I mean, I'm in Scotland. I'm a Presbyter, American Presbyterian. I'm in Scotland. I mean, I, I'm in heaven, I thought. And he laughs and he goes, Jesse, I could take you to a number of churches where there'll be only two people there. He said, because they cannot get along. He said, you can walk right across the street and there'll be another Presbyterian church that'll be a 150 years old. It'll be two people in there. And then you go walk down the road, there'll be another Presbyterian church and another denomination. All of these used to be together. But they have argued and fractured and argued and fractured and split and argued and split again until there are a numerous Presbyterian denominations and there'll be a minister with one to two, three people listening to the preacher. They can't even come together to worship God. Now, I think there's an application from this parable to that. 
Because we're talking about the kingdom of God. We're talking about the relationships of the kingdom of God. We're talking about the real genuine wealth, how we use our money, how we use our resources, how to do what? Make friends. Make friends. And it's becoming increasingly harder to make friends even in such a divisive culture as ours. I mean, that, that's the, isn't that the signature of the whole council culture? If you don't not only agree with me, but if you don't, you know, champion my beliefs, we're going to counsel you. I mean, that's ungodly. It's of the devil. And Christians shouldn't practice that on the, on the spiritual side. He says right there in verse 9, notice that verb there, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money. Use the money. It's not eternal. You're not taking it with you. It's, it's like the parable that Luke said in, in chapter 12 of, of the foolish rich man that built new barns. And, and, and God said to him on that night that his soul was acquired, you're a fool. You're not taking it with you. Others will use this wealth, whether it be your family. I mean, the Bible says, blessed is the righteous man that leaves an inheritance to his children's children. But it's temporal. It's for this world. It's not for the next. You're not taking it with you. I mean, you look at all the Egyptian tombs, you know, that have been raided for the gold and the silver that they put in there because they thought somehow they were going to get on a boat and go down the eternal river and take all this wealth with them. They didn't. They basically stored it for all the thieves and robbers that would come centuries later. The grave robbers. And Jesus tells them, he says, listen, he says, make friends for yourselves by mean of unrighteous money so that when it fails, the it has to refer to the money. Money comes and goes. You know, they're talking about a great economic crash. And I know that all of us have thought, what are we going to do? I mean, we look at our portfolios and what do we see? Ooh, negative. It hurts. You work, you save, you do all these things, and you're just being good stewards and disciplined over your spending and whatnot, and you see it, you see it being taken away. And and yet this money can just go away. What would you have left? Friends, relationships, people that care about you, people that you've benefited in the, in the fat times and now in the lean times, they may be able in a, be in a place to help you. Now, brothers and sisters, this is not ungodly. This is what Jesus is teaching Value friendships, human relationships. I, I know this, uh, and I'm running out of time, and I'm going to have to act quickly here, but I've got to speak to the whole multimedia thing. I mean, you know, I was in there getting my oil changed, and I mean, we were all adults, and I was probably the youngest one in there, and everybody was like this. <laughs> There was no interaction. There was no conversation. There's no eye contact when somebody walks by and goes, hey, how you doing? Nothing. Living in their own little world right here. And I just thought, wow. 
as good and as useful as multimedia stuff is, the Internet's great. I mean, we can contact missionaries like that. A lot of great uses for it. But what does, what, what, what do weak hearts, I'm not saying every, because Christians fall into this camp, right? Undisciplined people fall into just this, you know, constantly checking my phone, my multimedia. Now, I can't serve anybody because all I'm doing is checking what somebody says about me if they like my picture. Or what did they have for supper last night? And I'm guilty because I posted some food from my grill. It was good. To my buddies. Said, wish you were here. But we don't live there, do we? We live here. We live here. We don't live in these self-righteous little circles like the Pharisees, the rabbis. We don't live, we've got more in common than just existing. We got more in common than just the food we eat. We got more in common than just the college we went to. We got more in common in just the, the failure of, our, of the Western world. We've got, more, we've got greater things in common and we should be exploiting those things righteously using those things, making use of those things, making ourselves making ourselves useful. Not waiting to be useful, making ourselves useful. What did the unjust steward do? He came to his own senses. Yes, the circumstance put him there, but he did it. So should we. So we see here that we need to learn how to value the temporal with the eternal and make sure that we don't make temporal things have eternal value, which leads us, which leads us, I'm going to just jump to the last one because I think that's the application that Jesus is making here when he comes down the verse uh, 13, he says, no household slave can be the slave of two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Here's the point. You can't be slaves to both God and money. You can't serve two masters, can you? This is the comparison of God's. Jesus knows the problem with men is it's idolatry. You worship something. That's what Bob Dylan said. Yeah, somebody's going to worship something. And what you worship will control you. And people that worship mammon, people that worship money, it's obvious in their lives because everything they do is geared around the accumulation of more and more and more and more and more. And it does, there's no, there's no room to benefit others. There's no room to be useful to others. It's all about the accumulation of wealth more and more. When you think about these Bill Gates of the world and, you know, how much is enough? What is it I read he, he makes from his investments like $100 and uh, $200 a second, something like that. I mean, but he could fund a country. He could fund a Christian country, couldn't he? He could fund Christian judges. He could, my goodness. But, but yet he's using 
those resources to carry out the desires of his own evil heart, to do evil in the world. You can't serve two masters. And how we live today, tomorrow, and the next day is a reflection of the God we serve. If we truly believe in the one true and living God, the God that created everything, the God that actually blesses you with wealth, blesses you with resources, blesses you with talents, blesses you with skills, health. I mean, you may have the desire in your heart to serve others, but you don't have the health to do it. That day's past. And you say, oh, I wish I'd, I wish I, when I felt better, I wish I'd have done it. It's too late. Now you have to serve your brothers and sisters in other ways, like prayer. You have to look for other ways that now you can serve one another and be useful. I was talking to one of the dear older saints of the congregation, and, and, and they were lamenting this, un, being unable to, I'm just not what I used to be, and, and I feel bad, Pastor, what can I do? I said, pray, sister. Pray. I'll buy you a notebook. I'll buy you a box of pencils. Just write down prayer requests and pray for your brothers and sisters. That's huge. Yes, that's what I'll do. What an encouragement. What an encouragement to know somebody's praying for you. What a blessing. Brothers and sisters, you can say, I'm not an idolater. I serve the living and true God. How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? That's how I want to leave you with. Let's pray. Oh, blessed Father, we have been really convicted this morning through this parable that, at least at first reading, a little obscure, hopefully now more useful to us. Now, Father, I pray that you would take it and you would apply it, each into our own place. We're all different. We all different have a different degree of resources, skills, talents, time, all of these things. But what we want, Father, is how do we, how do we serve the kingdom of God? Yes, you bless us. Yes, we enjoy these blessings, and we are thankful for them, but how do we, in turn, make friends? How do we bless others? I pray that you would move upon each and every soul here on what they can do. Lord, what you would bless, what you would empower them to do, what you have gifted them to do, and it would be done. Lord, as we prepare now to come and fellowship and communion of this supper we pray your blessing upon it we pray that you would take these common elements this bread and wine and use them lord for a very special special use lord that we would truly by faith feast upon the body and blood of our savior the lord jesus we pray this in christ's name amen